The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm number 90, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 17 this evening, which is the entire psalm. The word of our Lord. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. But the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 7 this evening. The word of our God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Do you ever want more out of your Christian life? It is very natural and healthy to want more of the very best relationship that you can ever have, your relationship with the triune God. It is very natural and healthy to want to be more for the sake of the kingdom of God and to be a better example of godliness and to have a greater impact in the world for the sake of God's kingdom. More is a good word for Christians. But more is also a dangerous word. There are all manner of Christians, most of them quite sincere, who are offering you a plan to get more, if you will simply do it their way and according to their rules. Have you ever tried fasting twice a week? You know, that's really the key to a deep spiritual life. Or perhaps the key is learning to speak in tongues, receiving a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, or abstaining from the ordinary pleasures of of this world. Sure, people can be truly saved and still drink alcohol and so on, you know, but if you don't want to just be one of those entry-level sorts of Christians, you want to move to a higher level, you need to step back from enjoying those physical pleasures and learn to taste not, touch not, and so on. Then you can really ascend and be a mature Christian and have more of God in this world. Or perhaps the key is either exclusive psalm singing without instruments, or perhaps it's only singing contemporary music accompanied by guitars. I get confused. I don't know which one it is. Now, I'm kind of kidding a bit there on that last line, but this is actually a very serious matter. It's natural for us to want more of God and to be more for God, but many of the ways that people present to us that this is the way are actually contrary to God's own word. Wanting to know Christ and to be more fully conformed to his image is not only a good desire, It is God's plan for your life, a plan that he is carrying out right now through the ordinary means of grace and from you simply seeking to follow Jesus in your day-to-day life. But the desire for more can also leave you vulnerable as prey to people like the Judaizers. The church in Galatia has been thrown into a crisis by the Judaizers. Initially, many of the converts in Galatia were Gentiles, and they were so excited to have come to a living relationship with the true God, knowing that all their sins had been wiped away. But there were some Jewish Christians who came into the church in Galatia, not all the Jewish Christians by any means, but some of them who were known as Judaizers who started saying, that's good, but you need something more. And they actually came in two flavors. One flavor of the Judaizers went like this. Yes, it's great that you started to embrace the Jewish Messiah, but unless you convert fully and become a Jew, for the men that means unless you all get circumcised, but for everyone else, 
keep the kosher um, diet and celebrate the Jewish festivals that God had appointed through Moses, unless you do that, you cannot be saved. Now, the reality behind that was, that was a hard sell. I mean, after all, these Gentile Christians had experienced salvation. It wasn't just something they had read about. And when they confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, Christ, through his ministers, through his church, had had them baptized. They'd been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And week after week, as they gathered for worship, the minister would stand up, or one of the elders would stand up, it's a little fuzzy back then, and he would say, this is my body given for you. So some of them probably struggled with whether or not they had to go all the way to being Jews to be saved, but in many ways, that was an easy issue to get around. But there was a second approach. The approach of other Judaizers would have been far more difficult to combat. These false teachers were saying, we are so glad that you have come to believe in the Jewish Messiah, and yes, you are in. You are truly saved. But you know what? You're kind of flying coach in the Christian life. Wouldn't you like to fly first class? You've started out well, but you want to take that next step. Then you need to embrace the Jewish ceremonial laws. The men getting baptized, everyone keeping the kosher laws, and joyfully celebrating the feasts that God had given throughout the Old Testament, through the law of Moses. To be everything that you should be, and to receive everything that you could receive from Christ, you need to take the next step and become fully Jewish as Christians. You understand the pull of this. You want more, they're promising more. Furthermore, all the things you're talking about had been given by God. Nobody disputed that. You know, when you were a Gentile, if you weren't already a God-fearer that knew the Old Testament well, and you came to faith, the Bible in your church in Galatia was going to be what we call the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so they were studying these scriptures and marveling at God's grace to his people for 1,800 years from Abraham right down to their day. And they saw themselves grafted into this story. What would be more natural... What could be more natural than them saying, I'm going to fully identify and get circumcised and keep the Jewish ceremonial law? The very desire to be more for Christ and to receive more from Christ, good desires that every Christian should have, were leaving the Galatians vulnerable to a dangerous false teaching. For there are not two classes of Christians. By the way, this is not an issue that just happened to go away after Paul wrote his letter to uh, the Galatians. This is a problem throughout church history. In the 20th century, there was a false teaching that there were such a thing as carnal Christians and spiritual Christians, two classes of Christians. But that is not what the Bible teaches. As Paul says at the very end of the previous chapter, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs 
according to the promise. This brings us right up to tonight's passage, which we're going to look at under three main headings. First, Paul's analogy. Second, Paul's shocking statement about the Old Testament ceremonial law. And third, the astonishing gift of being adopted by the Lord. Let me give those to you again. First, Paul's analogy. Second, Paul's shocking statement about the Old Testament ceremonial law. And third, the astonishing gift of being adopted by the Lord. We begin with Paul's analogy. Now I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, most of the passage tonight. I'm going to read them again in your hearing. The reason why I'm doing this is um, this analogy can be hard to get until it finally just clicks for you. And I'm trusting that repetition is the mother of learning. So I want you to have this over and over again in your mind. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, in one sense, Paul's analogy is pretty straightforward. He's using the analogy of people growing up. And, and you know, when you're a child, um, life is simple, actually, as a child. You don't have to have a lot of responsibilities and figure things out or earn the uh, money to buy the food for the table. But life also has a lot of rules. Many of those rules are rules that aren't even explained to you. You know, you eat the food your parents buy for you and prepare for you. You go to bed when your parents tell you to, and you follow all manners of rules around the house just because. Because your parents are in charge, and you're young. You're four or five years old. You don't need to have everything explained to you. These are all good. If you have loving parents who have a reasonable degree of wisdom, uh, you follow the rules, and life is really good as a young child. But then you grow up. I mean, you don't stay like that. As you become a teenager and so on, you're, you're starting to understand things better. And parents are going to take the, the rules off a bit and start coaching you and giving you wisdom. Because after all, parents, we are not raising children who are going to be children forever. Uh, as the title of one book, I think, very helpfully puts it about raising boys, the title is called Future Men. So you're raising these young boys and you want them to have a happy childhood but you're also shepherding their hearts, their minds, their talents, so that they will grow up to be healthy and happy teenagers, healthy and happy adults, who are productive for the world, for our neighbors, and for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, frankly, it would be really weird if a 30-year-old man still had a curfew set by his mother and father. We would know that something has gone fundamentally wrong. Perfectly appropriate for a 12-year-old, totally inappropriate for a 30-year-old. Because we're moving from infancy to youth to maturity. 
And Paul was saying that's precisely what God is doing with you. Now, I say with you, but it raises a question. When do you, according to this passage, move to maturity? Well, what's the analogy here? And see, because Western Christianity is so individualistic, you would be very tempted to answer that question by saying, when I come to a place of self-conscious faith that I am professing before other people, I have moved from infancy to a type of maturity in my Christian life. But that is not what Paul is talking about. Paul's not talking about you and me as individuals. He's talking about the whole church as it moves through the ages. Look, look back here um, at this passage with me. And I want you to see this in his word. Right? Paul, Paul is saying that this takes place not in your life as an individual. It takes place in the history of God's people when the Son of God is sent into this world. That's where everything shifts. Now, I should back up here for a moment and remind you that um, we understand how this language works in our own day, but we want to see how it works in the first century. So in our own day, we understand that parents have these sorts of rules. But because Jesus, um, because Paul was talking about a royal priesthood, it's natural that he would be in have in mind here a very wealthy family with a large estate with hired people who take care of the children. In fact, it could even be a child of the king. We are a royal priesthood. And you have to think about what it's like to grow up as a child of the king in the ancient world. Well, in the modern world, if you think back to like the Rockefellers, the, the, the fact that they're born in the Rockefeller family means they're set for life financially. They don't have to do anything. One day they are going to be fabulously wealthy. But a four-year-old child who's a Rockefeller has to listen to the hired people that are babysitters and tutors and guardians and so on. Uh, Four-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-old Rockefellers are not doing business deals. They're not selling properties. They're not negotiating. They're not telling the groundskeepers what to do, even though they will do that in the future when they grow up. In the ancient world, it was even more striking because if you were a child of a very, very wealthy family, or a child of the king in the ancient Near East, as you grew up, the people taking care of you wouldn't just be hired servants. They would be slaves. Now think about that. The slaves would be put in charge of you, and you, though you were the heir of everything, that's what Paul's drawing on here, you, although you would be heir of everything, one day the future king, you had to listen to these slaves. Do you understand that? The irony, of course, is, is that one day those slaves are going to have to listen to you when you pass from your youth to being the adult who takes part as an adult heir in this estate. So I bring you back to that key question again in the analogy. When do the people of God move from being like young children to being treated like mature heirs of everything with Jesus Christ. I'm harping on this question for a reason. It's not the way we naturally think in Western Christianity. We have to get it, because it is what the Bible is telling us. 
That transition does not take place in your life, at an event in your life. It's taking place in the history of God's people. So Paul was saying, when you look back at the people in the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, that is a church under age. That is a church that not everything's being explained to them. There are a lot of rules applied to the church under age <clears throat> that treats them as though they are a type of slaves, even though one day they're going to inherit everything. But that time has come and gone because the Son of God has come into the world. And with the transition from the old covenant to the new, we're moving from a, a, a church under age to a church that is beginning to enjoy a type of maturity. Look at this in your text, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The transition that Paul has in mind is not something that takes place at some point in my life. The transition Paul is talking about is between the church as an immature child, a real child, that the people are going to inherit if they are of faith, to the maturity of the church that comes with Christ, with the fullness of the new covenant, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This analogy leads to a shocking reality about the way that Paul treats the Old Testament ceremonial law. What are the Judaizers tempting the Gentile Christians in Galatia with? You want more, don't you? This is how you get more. You embrace the Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul's saying, you know, that's rather odd. As Christians, you have been incorporated into the people of God already. You are part of this. This is part of your story. You look back on Abraham and say, Abraham has many sons and I am one of them. But how odd it is of the Judaizers to want you to go back to immaturity when you're already being born again and living as a believer in a state of greater privilege, greater authority, and greater blessing. See, Paul is saying, embracing the Jewish ceremonial laws, that's like trying to move from being a mature adult who has the free use of his father's estate back to being a child under slaves. Rather than this bringing you more in your Christian life, embracing the old covenant ceremonial laws as still being binding will lead you to less. By the way, I want to say that's true about all these other things, too. At least the old covenant ceremonial laws were given by God. But all those other things that people promise you that are man-made rules about how you can have more in the Christian life, they promised more, but they actually bring you less. Less than you already have, and not the more that God wants for you. Now, Paul does something that's a little hard to understand here. It takes a lot of study if you want to talk with me about it more, please get in touch with me, email me. We could talk in private. I'm going to give you just the conclusion here. It might not be immediately obvious to you. But Paul is writing to people, many of whom are Gentile Christians, but there's also Jewish Christians there. And he's going to talk about the elementary principles of the world. And he does rather a shocking thing. He brings together the Jewish ceremonial law 
with the elementary principles of the world that the pagans lived by. And he brings them together as though they're one thing. And he's saying, you've left those behind. Well, it's kind of shocking, of course, because the pagan elementary principles of the world weren't given by God. You know, so Paul would have been very free to say, if you're in 200 B.C. and you're a pagan, by all means you ought to move from the pagan elementary principles of the world to the Jewish elementary principles of the world. All those rules about how you're supposed to keep separate and the fibers in your coats and so on, because you're moving from man's word to God's word. And for Paul, the entire law is always holy and righteous and good. But now that we're in Christianity, now that we're in the New Covenant, going back either way, going back to paganism is obviously bad, but going back to the Jewish elementary principles of the world is also to miss out on, and in some sense actually to reject, what God has accomplished in Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You see how that works? Old Testament Israel is the church under age. And frankly, it's weird to tell someone in the New Covenant to go back to living like the saints under the Mosaic Law. It's as weird to do that as it would be to tell a 40-year-old lawyer that she ought to go back and live as a child in her childhood home. There's actually also an irony about what the Judaizers were calling the Galatian Christians to do. Um, In many cultures, uh, such as in Egypt, there's an official story. I mean, actually, all cultures tend to have an official history, as it were, of the empire. If you look at a country like Egypt, or an empire like Egypt, what you find out is, in their official history, nothing bad ever happens. The pharaohs win all their wars. They're always a great blessing to the people. They're always incredibly wise. And you simply go from victory to victory. Uh, They're an extreme example, but that's the normal way that human beings tell their own history. Then you turn to the Bible and you discover it's very different than that. In the Bible, God tells us the truth. The truth about who he is, but also the truth about who we are. And I know for me, and I suspect this is true for many of you, the first time I read through the Old Testament straight through in a relatively short period of time, one of the things that was shocking to me was the fact that almost all the people were lost. I mean, the people of Israel. They clearly don't have faith in the living God. <clears throat> There's an ongoing cycle of idolatry. Uh, it could be the wilderness generation, that even though they see those signs and wonders that are delivered out of Egypt, all the adult men, except for two, Caleb and Joshua, God kills in the wilderness. And we're told why. So it's not because they didn't do all the works perfectly well. They died in the wilderness because they didn't believe God. They didn't have faith. Right? That's the story of ancient Israel and the Old Covenant. And then, you know, you move into Israel and you have people going after the Baal worship and Asherah worship and all kinds of idolatry and trusting everything else other than the Lord. That's the main storyline. God's perfect faithfulness and Israel's perpetual faithlessness. Well, the irony is, why go back? I mean, Paul is saying, you've already been grafted into Israel. Um, Andrew Doss puts it well. He says, 
Paul was suggesting that his hearers already share in Israel's story. The problem is, is that the Galatians are threatening to share in the worst part of that story. Right? Why would you choose to go back to the ages? Think about going back to a golden age. Why would you choose to go back to an age where the people were mostly corrupt and say, that's where I'm going to get more, rather than recognizing that God is now doing so much more for us in the new covenant? Paul's analogy, therefore, contains what for many first century Jews would have been a shocking relativization of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Yes, it also, yet it also points us to the astonishing gift of being adopted into God's family. Please look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Beloved, this is an astonishing truth. The living God who spoke the universe into existence has said, You're my daughter. You are my son. And he did this for us not because we were pursuing him. He looked down on us. Think about how insignificant we are as creatures compared to the living God. And he looked down upon us. You have to remember, there was a time when you were God's enemy. You were running against him. You were selfish. God said, I'm going to do everything necessary to wipe away your sin and bring you into my family is my very own daughter. And you know what? You are going to reign and live with my son, Jesus Christ, my eternally perfect son. You're going to reign and live with him forever. There's really no appropriate analogy that can do justice to the staggering nature of the grace of God adopting us into his family. All we can really do is exalt with joy with the Apostle John. Oh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's staggering. What has changed with the coming of Christ, which leads us to a greater stage of maturity, is this. Well, first of all, for one thing, now that Christ has come, we have a much fuller understanding of who God is. You know, right, in old times, right, God spoke through the prophets and he gave dreams, right? But now in the last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In Christ, we understand God more fully than they did. Not that what they understood wasn't true, but we have so much more. And of course, we have a completed canon of Scripture with the entire New Testament. Furthermore, Christ has restored us to being a kingdom of priests. You want to go back to ancient Israel, you have to remember that they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, but before Moses could even give them the covenant document of the Ten Commandments, they had so rebelled against God by making the golden calf that instead of being a kingdom of priests to the nations... They needed a tribe of priests, the Levites, to mediate God's blessings to the rest of Israel. 
But with the coming of Christ, that's no longer true. That's one of the reasons why it's a very important truth for you to hold on to, is the priesthood of all believers. In Christ, you are priests of the living God. God has poured out his spirit on you to anoint you for this very task. And this goes hand in glove with the fact that we are, as the kingdom of priests, have been filled with the Holy Spirit in a very special way. The Apostle Paul draws our attention to a very personal way this impacts us. Not so much for other people, but for ourselves. Look back at verse 6 again. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Keep in mind that Jews, before the coming of Christ, other than the kings, did not call themselves sons of God. But now the Holy Spirit, God himself, who indwells you, cries out in your heart. He testifies to you that you are a child of God, whereby we cry out in faith, just like Jesus did, Abba, Father. Andrew Doss once again puts it very well. The sending of the Son and the Spirit together entails profoundly practical implications. Whereas the rivals, that is the Judaizers, are stressing the law of Moses as the source of the Christian life, Paul is stressing the genuine change that the Spirit of his Son brings. The Spirit has been poured into our hearts. This is not some charismatic second experience. The experience of the Spirit is part and parcel of being a son, an heir in Christ. The Spirit renders God and his Son a personal reality. The Christian enjoys a new and changed identity. Christ lives in the believer. The baptized believer is clothed in Christ. Those who enjoy the Spirit's presence no longer stand at a distance from God, but are privileged to address God as Father. The Spirit within the believer cries, Abba, Father, as did Jesus himself. The Spirit refashions those who are sons in Christ into the likeness of Christ. The obvious question is, why would anybody who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, why would anyone who by that work is now a son or a daughter of the living God, want to go back and be hemmed in under rules designed for the church that is under age? The temptation is this. You'll get more out of that. But the Holy Spirit is making clear to us that we already have more in the New Covenant and the New Covenant experience of Christ in the Scriptures than the greatest saints in the Old Testament ever enjoyed. You have to mark that in your thinking. You ought to realize we're not just pegs moving along through history and we're in the same place as Abraham or Moses or David. Our position of privilege is far more. Peter himself says in his first letter, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time 
the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. You get that? Your position as a normal Christian, nothing particularly stands out about you necessarily. I mean, you're wonderful people, but it's not like people in China are going, I know about this guy there in Merrimack, right? Just ordinary Christians. Your position is better than that of the prophets in the Old Testament. The blessings of the new covenant are better than what even the prophets of God experienced in those days. In fact, even the angels long to look into and to understand the wondrous truths and blessings that are now being poured out upon Christ's church. Does not our Lord say the very same thing? Think about when the messengers come from John the Baptist. This is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, beloved, I trust you all realize Jesus isn't saying the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater in faithfulness than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of the greatest saints who's ever lived. What Jesus is saying is, no matter how lowly your position is in the kingdom of heaven in the new covenant, you are greater in privilege than even John the Baptist, who was the herald of the living God come in the flesh. We should regularly give thanks with grateful hearts for the blessings and privileges that come to us as God's people who are now part of the new covenant church. It is simply extraordinary. But what do we do with all this? First, We do need to grasp Paul's analogy of the church moving from being underage in the Old Testament to coming to a type of new maturity in the new. Uh, This, in fact, will help you understand how the covenants fit together as a whole, right? To understand that it's not simply changing of rules, but there's an organic growth that is uh, going on, an organic growth that goes from infancy to youth and now to a degree of maturity in the new covenant church. Second, we ought to continue to be deeply moved by the astonishing truth that the living God has adopted us into his family. Uh, I want to encourage you, please make this a regular part of your praise and worship of God. Don't, Don't take for granted that God is your father. That ought to continue to amaze you every day of your life. Our gracious father is not simply rendered a dry verdict, followed by the phrase, you are now free to go. A distant judge might do that, but might find that you're in the right and say you're now free to go. But your Father in heaven says, I have vindicated you in my Son. You are now free to stay. Right? As Jesus tells us, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, if you grew up in the King James Version, you know the King James Version says, in my father's house there are many mansions. People, I've actually heard people say this, I'm not downgrading my mansion to a room. God has a mansion for me. That misses the whole point, because I want you to understand the room is so much better than a mansion. Because it's a room in your father's house. He's not blessing you out there. He's saying, you're going to be with me forever. Third and finally, we should recognize that we all have a good and healthy desire to receive more and to be more for the sake of the kingdom of God. But that desire will not be satisfied through the imposition of man-made rules nor will it be satisfied by trying to return to a supposedly golden era of the past, whether that's the Reformation, a particular group of Puritans, or the Old Covenant. By the way, I will tell you that I often run into seminary students who want to go back to some supposedly golden age. They have to remind them that God has called them to live and to minister right now. When you get to know those so-called golden ages, they weren't all that golden anyway. Your desire for more will not be satisfied by trying to return to a supposedly golden era in the past. Your desire for more will be satisfied in the inexhaustible riches that are found in Christ and in Christ alone as you come to know him better and as you are conformed into his likeness. And so may your hearts be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Beloved, treasure Christ, and you will receive treasures beyond compare. Amen.